Hello and welcome back to the Scottish Educators Connect podcast. You're here with me, James. And me, Anita. Thank you for joining us for our first episode of our trio of podcasts focused on play in the early level. Over the last few months of Scottish Educators Connect coming together, we've explored play pedagogy as a theme throughout our texts. Much of this due to the rich knowledge, understanding and skills that many of our members have in play pedagogy. We're absolutely delighted over the next three weeks to have practitioners from early learning and childcare settings and schools share their perspective of play pedagogy across the early level. This week, we're joined by Katrina Gill, an Edinburgh Nursery School head teacher and author. Hello, Katrina. Hi there, James and Anita. Lovely to be here. Hi, Katrina. Thank you so much for coming to speak with us. I am really excited to be talking to you today because you have inspired so much of my practice, both in early learning and childcare and now moving back into primary one. Katrina, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what's your experience and interests in education? So um, I became a teacher about 11, 12 years ago. Um, it was a kind of career change. Um, I was in my late 30s. I've worked in nursery. I've worked in, in primary one. Um, I then became principal teacher with responsibility for uh, nursery and supporting that move into primary one. And then now I'm head teacher at Green Gables, um, which is a nursery and family centre in Edinburgh. And alongside that, um, I was also invited to join the Edinburgh Frobo Network, which is a group of very experienced nursery head teachers who started um, working together um, on around the whole assessment is for learning um, kind of time. And then that moved into Frobelian practice and they started conferences, set up the course at the university. And I feel very privileged now to be part of that group and um, providing that training now for about 500 people a year. Um, it, um, across the whole of Scotland. Amazing, Katrina. Um, I'm going to go off piste a little bit now and ask why why Froebel? Can you talk us a little bit about your experience here and why you're so dedicated to this practice with your children? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, when I did the course, it it was a coming together of things I really believed in. So some of the things that I've always kind of believed in um, about social justice um, and the importance of people having a voice, that's a very Frobelian um, kind of principle. I also was a trained person-centred counsellor before I became a teacher and the child and the family and the community at the centre of all that we do is absolutely a Frobelian principle. Um, I think for me, love is extremely important and that idea of love um, again and respect for children is very much um, part of Frobelian practice. So for me, it was about bringing together the things I believed in and bringing them together in a cohesive whole, if that makes sense. So, you know, I had thought of this about, about practice and we should have the environment like this. But until I did the course and had these principles um, it, it wasn't underpinned by theory. And I think there's a real strength when you have that underpinning of theory, because you know what it's like in education. There's continually a new initiative here and something else there. <laughs> and, you know, I think having that theory and these principled beliefs, that helps you negotiate and navigate that. And, you know, I always just keep coming back and I keep saying, you know, is this about the, the child? Um, are they at the centre? 
is play? How are we supporting play here? Um, are we encouraging children to be symbol users and be creative? Um, are they engaging with nature? You know, all of these things help guide you and help you say no. Um, sometimes that can be tricky, especially if you, your senior management team is not on board. But it's really important, I think, to have those principles that help to, to navigate and guide um, and chart a kind of clear course. That's so interesting, Katrina, and thank you for sharing that. I remember when I was, oh goodness, 19 years old, I had started the B.Ed. at Murray House and my first placement was in a nursery class for six weeks, actually a nursery school. It was Tynecastle Nursery School. And um, then it was the, the old building with the veranda and um, Stella Brown, who oh, yes, was yes. leading the nursery. And I remember now looking back distinct experiences of the care and the respect and the trust of the children. But looking back now, I remember at the age of 19, not quite truly grasping the importance of what was happening at Tynecastle Nursery School mm -hmm. and um, just how much that would then go on to shape my practice in working with young children. James, I know that you've got quite a commitment to social justice and what you do. Is there any kind of links there with what Katrina is saying and, and Frobelian principles? Absolutely. And uh, it's been great to connect with you, Katrina, through Scottish Educators Connect and, and through the conversation that we had with the book that you'd co-authored. And I wasn't too au fait or familiar with some of the Frobelian principles uh, prior to hearing yourself and the others talk. And um, for me, I'm strongly committed to, to social justice within education and to see how we can really weave the likes of equality and diversity through all of the practice um, and through the development of the way that we shape our curriculum and our, and our pedagogy for our children and young people. And I'm really pleased to see in the revised standards from the General Teaching Council how social justice and learning for sustainability just sits at the core of that. And from hearing what you talk about with the Frobelian principles, they just absolutely dovetail with, with what's said there from, from my perception anyway. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that idea of, of equality and diversity, I mean, as a Frobelian, we, we meet the child where they are. And every single child is unique and they have their unique strengths that they bring, um, you know, to the group. And I think for me, there's that balance between, um, you know, kind of holding the whole group and also uh, enabling the individuality of each child. Um, and so it's a very inclusive um, practice, um, practice. And as well, you mentioned sustainability and again, that connection with nature and looking after the planet and the environment um, and really thinking about where we fit in that whole ecological view is, is really important um, to Fribulians as well. So you're right. I think it all dovetails really nicely. And these things that you're talking about, connection with nature, um, diversity and social justice and sustainability, I think that these are um, known characteristics of early learning and childcare, of um, early childhood experiences and education. But why should we do that in primary one, Katrina? Why play for P1? Why play for P1? It's a huge question, Anita. It is. It's I massive. Mean, I think... <laughs> It's massive. I think you have to start, okay, with the with the um, UNCRC Article Thirty One, the right to play. Every child has a right to play, um, and it's really we know that it's an essential component of physical, social, cognitive, emotional, and spiritual development. Um, 
you know, play helps children make connections in their learning. And I really think it's a form of metacognition. It's one of these things that reflecting on how we learn that we're wanting to develop and encourage in our children. And actually young children do it hugely naturally through their play. Um, you know, they're reflecting and using the skills that they've got and trying out new things and recombining ideas. So play is this wonderful kind of mechanism. It provides a really important context for learning and development. And I think, you know, people have always known this. You know, Plato talked about um, children should be given, you know, little things to play with. Um, the Greek words for pedagogy and play are connected. Etymology, you know, they're etymologically connected with the same root. So, you know, a long time ago, we knew play was important for young children. Um, I, I think it's important for all of us as adults as well, you know. Um, but now we've got neuro, neuropsychology, neurology, and we know so much more about the brain. And, you know, that really is kind of bearing up the evidence for play being this really important um, kind of medium. I mean, Vygotsky early on in the 1900s identified that play was this leading activity of young children. Um, and, you know, I think we're incredibly lucky in, in Scotland that we have this great curriculum. Um, you know, building the curriculum too talks about developmentally appropriate practice. Um, we have a real freedom within our curriculum to provide um, appropriate, um, you know, things for each child. So, you know, my curriculum in my school might look different from in yours in it or in James's because our children are different, our families, our communities are different. And that's one of the great strengths of, of Scottish education, I think, that, that we are able to be flexible in that. So I think play is just, um, you know, this wonderful medium that really helps children to learn. I was really inspired by your chapter in putting storytelling at the heart of early childhood practice, Katrina, because I felt in reading that I could almost put myself into into your shoes or, or into your eyes in terms of being able to see what the play-based practice and those Frebellian principles, how did they play out in that primary one uh, classroom? And I'm sure like myself, a number of our listeners will be really interested to hear a bit more around about your experience of play in primary one, what some of the impact that you saw or some of the evidence of, of outcomes for, for children and taking that approach that you just described. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I was incredibly lucky. The last primary one class I had, I um, took them on from nursery. So I knew almost all of the children really, really well. And um, we had some really clearly established routines and and um, ways of, of doing things. So the children and I just kind of moved quite seamlessly from nursery into primary one. Um, I think that's a really important thing that we don't always get right. We talk a lot about transitions, um, but you know, a lot of the time children are very independent in nursery and then you see them in primary one and the teacher is zipping their coats up and putting their shoes on for them all in the name of speed. And, you know, children lose that um, kind of autonomy and agency within their own space and, and around their own um, abilities. Um, so I think that was a real kind of important thing for me. But but I went into a primary one classroom that wasn't particularly well set up for play. Um, and I think that can be really challenging for, for um, primary one teachers. Nurseries, I think, traditionally have always had that wee extra pot of money that 
they've scrimped and saved and been able to do fundraising or um, snack money kind of I've always had a wee donation for toys on the top of it and actually primary one classrooms are a bit forgotten a lot of the time um, I think there's been some really great strides and I know a lot of the um, B1 classrooms have had PEF money um, you know, put towards them and new resources bought and that makes such a huge difference um, so yeah there was quite a bit of um, you know, how do I really set this classroom up uh, my my colleague from nursery came in with me in the holidays and the two of us had a good old shove around of the furniture um, trying to make little areas um, for the children. Lots and lots of loose parts and a lot of loose parts are free. Um, I spend a lot of my time filling my bag or my pockets with conkers and sticks and shells and things like that. So, you know, you can resource. I mean, I, I'm quite strongly against teachers spending their money on resourcing their classrooms. I think you know, our government should be doing that. Um, mm -hmm. But I know lots of teachers do do spend their money on that. So so really it's about getting that, um, you know, and I think um, realising the ambition kind of really looks at it like that. So you've got your environment, you need to create this rich environment. Um, and it doesn't always have to look pretty, um, but the, the um, resources that you're choosing to put in there are ones that are going to enable creativity, they're not going to have had lots of the learning already taken out of them, which a lot of children's toys do have. So looking at open-ended materials that can be adapted and be used creatively. Um, I think also um, because I have my class, we had our routines already kind of in place. And I remember having a an art kind of art period of time. And I had been given a, a pupil support assistant at that time because usually she would come in and clean up after the children. and. At the end of the lesson, I just said, right, it's tidy up time. And all the children suddenly were incredibly busy. The classroom was tidied. The tables were all white. And she just kind of stood there and said, I've never, ever seen a primary one class do this. Um, and I said, well, you know, if you give them the opportunity, they're really, really capable. Um, so I think, it, you know, that's sort of setting the tone for how this is going to be, having really high expectations of our children. Um, who really, you know, when when you give them that, they step up, um, and then just allowing lots of opportunities um, for children to play, and that can be really tricky. Um, and I know we might go on to talk a bit more about challenges, but I think it's one of the things that comes up a lot. Um, you know, I'm on quite a lot of forums where people are trying to do P1 play or P2 play, and really struggling with how do I fit in the more formal parts of the curriculum? When do I teach phonics? How do I do reading groups? And, you know, there's no easy answer to that. It's not easy to balance it. Um, and it's about taking baby steps and letting go control. Um, and I think having spent a lot of time in nursery, I was used to not having control in the classroom, which really helps. But if you've not had that nursery experience, I think it can be quite difficult to give the control back to the children um, but when you do that what you start to see are these incredibly exciting things happening um, so I remember once we were doing something about money um, and um, suddenly one of the children kind of said oh can we have a shop and I said well yeah yeah let's have a shop and you know I know that maybe in at the beginning of my career I would have gone home spent all weekend printing out resources to make it look like a shop I would have brought in things tins and packets and we would have set it all up but the children really wanted to do it then and there and I needed to be able to respond in that moment 
And so what, what did we have? We had um, craft materials. We had junk modelling. So I said to the children, OK, there you go. You'll, what do we need for a shop? We need a till. We need signs. OK, so who's going to make the till? Who's going to make the signs? Who's going to make the money? Who's going to make the things that go in the shop? Who's going to put the labels on? And all the children, you know, divided up the tasks and got on with it. And it was one of these wonderful moments. They don't happen very often <laughs> where there's this spontaneous thing goes on. The children are all incredibly engaged um, and they completely had ownership of it, way more ownership of it than if I had, you know, done it all and they turned up on Monday morning and had a lovely shop in the corner. Um, so play gives those wonderful moments of learning where children can really take ownership of their own learning, I think. And I think as well, what I'm picking up there, Katrina, is, you know, the opportunity or, or the culture, actually, rather than opportunity, just the embedded culture of freedom, independence and risk taking and the benefits that that has on a child's ability to be creative and reflective and evaluative and to make changes and evaluate them and to continue that process. And um, it's reminding me of um, a situation, um, an experience that we had in the nursery garden. We had a new early years assistant join our team um, in January and she's just wonderful. She's just amazing. And she'd asked me how we set up the nursery garden. And I had said to her, well, they like something to climb on. So what I do is I just make a really basic kind of plank, um, kind of bridge with the wood and then they develop it themselves. And she said, oh, what do you mean they develop it? And I said, just watch. So we'd laid out a pallet with a plank for walking up. Um, and then throughout that morning, what she'd observed was the children bringing tires, other wooden pallets and um, kind of pipes to extend that climbing frame. That, and at the end of the experience, it was really complex and complicated. You had things to climb up and jump off and slide down and go under. And it, it was really complex um, thinking, but the children had collaborated to do that themselves. Now, had I created a really complex climbing frame out of the stuff before they got there, they would have had some fun climbing over it and under it and through it and they'd have enjoyed it and probably created games around it. But the same depth of learning wouldn't have happened. The evaluation, the creation, the planning, the trial and error, let's do this again. And I think that's what we get in nursery settings and it's what we could have in primary one settings when we just have a culture or that embedded understanding that the children will investigate and explore and take risks and we the adults won't try to dictate or direct too much where that goes um, and I think that's just that richness is what we really get um, in playing primary one when we the adults stop being control freaks I think and I think as teachers think that's how we're trained isn't it you know, yeah. <laughs> plan everything to create all the materials to present it to the class and it's quite a head flip yeah. in a way to a risk to assessment for everything uh, stop yeah. <laughs> I think what you talked about there as well Katrina was that notion of what realising the ambition talks about in that child centred cycle where we've got that opportunity where we can observe in terms of, of listening with our eyes and our ears and that example with the and um, with the children wanting to develop that shop. But it's around about that concept of planning that we talk about. And we need to have, yes, elements of intentional planning, but it's that responsive nature more so that you were talking around about there, Anita, that we need to really consider how does that translate from 
the practice in early learning and childcare, and then what does that start to look like when we're thinking around about our um, our practice in primary one? I'm going a little bit off piece as well there, Katrina, but I know that you're a bit of a bravara um, in block play. Um, and I'm just sort of interested in some of the sort of block play practice and, and if um, and if you developed any of that whilst you were working in primary one. Do you know, that's a really interesting question because you're right, block play is my complete passion. But <laughs> I really struggled. And I think, you know, I think this is it's really important that people hear that this is not easy doing play in primary one. I really struggled to spend any time in my block area. I had a block area. I was lucky enough I had blocks. But I I really struggled to find the time to be in there to do the observations and to, you know, help support and facilitate that learning. And what was really interesting was that when I did observe, the children I'd had in nursery were actually continuing to be quite sophisticated within their block play um, because they'd had a lot of that experience beforehand. I had about half a dozen children who had come from other settings who clearly hadn't had that experience and they didn't make a great deal of progress in block play. They still remained at quite an early stage. And I thought that was really quite interesting. And I was very aware of the fact that it was mainly depending on the fact that actually I didn't get enough time to be in the block area. Um, and I think, you know, that's that's one of the things you have to deal with as a primary one teacher that, You've gone in nursery, we've got one to eight, one to ten ratios. In in primary one, you could have 22, 23 children just on your own um, and very often not anybody else in the room. And that's the juggling act. That's the really difficult balance. Um, but I think it's really important to try and get those times and make those moments for observation because observation is really the key to everything. And I think that's something as well that that primary one practitioners who are just coming to this find quite difficult. But observation is assessment. Observation is helping us know where the child is and looking at that kind of narrative around what they're doing and thinking about what significant learning is and what the skills that they're developing are. And then that's feeding into our planning. And our planning might be right in the moment, knowing um, exactly the right thing to say to extend that learning within the play. Or it might be something that you scribble down on a notebook and look at at the end of the day and plan in for the next day. But observation is absolutely the key to knowing you know, where the children are at, what they're interested in, how, how they might develop their thinking. Um, and when you don't do it, like with me with my blocks, you know, the, the learning doesn't develop in the same way. Remember a piece of advice that you gave us when you came to do the block play training at my school, which was put yourself into the block corner or put yourself into an area of the nursery or the p1 classroom and the children will come to you and they will play and they will extend their learning and they will be engaged in it but when you're not there you can't actually see the richness of, of what's happening and how the children are progressing in their play absolutely and i think by being there what you're telling them is that, that this is important to you um, and i think as well what you've said there Anita about timetabling long periods children can't can't play in 10 minutes or 15 minutes they can't yeah. get into it they need to be able to wallow in their play um, and I love that for, phrase um, are, <laughs> it's a wonderful phrase and that's one of Tina Bruce's phrases and I think it you know Tina Bruce's 12 features of free flow play are really helpful 
Um, and I think she kind of said that if if you see at least five or more of these um, things, then you know that the quality of the play is high. And that's what we're aiming for. We're aiming for high quality play. And, you know, it's a bit scary. So actually, maybe, you know, keeping your control if you want to, you know, for bits of the day and then having, you know, a couple of afternoons a week to start with. Get, then it starts to give you an experience of it. And as you then, you know, and I think probably a lot of the teachers that are part of Scottish Educators Connect started with a wee bit. And then as they saw the benefits of it and saw how powerful um, play is, they then start, started making that a bit more and a bit more um, until, you know, the balance is, is maybe almost 50-50, which you know, is a great balance. Absolutely. I was supposed to ask you, Katrina, about challenges to doing play in P1, but I realised that actually we've kind of already spoken about some of the big ones, resourcing, timetabling, proper time for play um, and finding that balance between kind of more structured parts of the curriculum as opposed to more free play all the time parts of the curriculum. Absolutely. There's a couple of things I would maybe add. One of them would be get yeah. off Pinterest. <laughs> is the bane of my life um you know lovely pictures and people competing to make their classroom look the most beautiful and i see particularly newly qualified teachers up till two in the morning making beautiful resources setting out puffed trees to look gorgeous and the children come in and trash it all you know and i think teachers need to just to sort of really just observe children to see what they do with materials that actually they don't need to spend so much time um, you know, making making things, making resources. Focus your time on what's really important. The really important thing is the teaching and learning. Um, and I think, you know, for a teacher, you know, you said that about um, standing back and, and, and watching. And this and as a Fribilian we talk quite a lot about freedom with guidance. So it's not a laissez faire approach where you're just standing back doing nothing. You're very actively thinking about what you're seeing and connecting it to your knowledge of the curriculum. So, you know, you have to know that curriculum inside out. Um, you also, you know, need to develop your pedagogical knowledge about around about numeracy. If you're using, for instance, SEAL, you know, do you really know how that progresses and develops? If you're thinking about teaching writing, do you know how narrative structures develop? Do you know the sorts of things that can support the development of that? So you know, it's really thinking about deepening your pedagogy so that you've got all there as a base to draw on. But but then you can sit back and, and look and your mind is active, but you're not necessarily standing up at the front and, and kind of conducting. Um, so so I think, you know, that that would be a challenge, I would say, is to, for people to, you know, really get that depth of knowledge. Um, but yeah, get off Pinterest. That, that, that's one, <laughs> my one bit of advice. <laughs> I um, think that that concept that you were both talking around about there in terms of that developmentally appropriate practice is something that we have touched on through our conversations in terms of Scottish Educators Connect. Um, I think we would need a completely separate podcast if we were going to talk about the likes of early literacy, language and communication and how we can how we can match teach and learn to the needs of kids within that context. So I'm not going to go down that thread, but just absolutely agree with those components and the work that we've done in emerging literacy across the across the Northern Alliance has has been supporting practitioners to really deepen that pedagogical understanding around about how the development 
of early literacy language and communication develops within their practice um, so that they can really hone the their own skills as, as practitioners. So I suppose what I'm wanting to pick up on then is thinking about that within a, a play pedagogy context, um, Katrina, and thinking around about what are the three most important do's for all teachers within a primary one class that are developing play pedagogy? What would be those sort of three top tips of advice? Okay, so I think probably the three must-dos, we've kind of talked about some of them already. Um, I think probably one of the really important ones is, is to really think about the routines and the structure that you have in your classroom. Um, you know, your environment is not just a physical environment, but um, it's the sort of emotional environment as well. So we're looking for an environment that is emotionally safe and intellectually challenging. So if you think about um, where children have come from at nursery, the, the nursery has this kind of hidden routine that kind of shapes the whole day. And children have confidence in that. They know what's coming next. They know it's going to be um, snack time or they know it's going to be lunch time. And of course, we have things like um, visual timetables and things to help us with that. But if you can really get that routine going, then that really, really helps. Um, I think when I first, my first year of teaching, the head teacher gave all of us a book called The First Six Weeks of Teaching. I think it's um, out of print now, but it was really fantastic because it kind of looked at how do you set up that structure and that it takes quite a lot of time. But it was talking about how you teach children how to use the resources, for instance. So um, in my primary one classroom, I had an area which was kind of maths types resources um stones and conkers and dice and things like that now the children would use these for um, doing maths activities but also when they were in their free play quite often we had a wee puppet theater and they would put on puppet shows they'd set out chairs to make a kind of theater and somebody would go around serving popcorn which was the, the stones and, and the um, dice and things like that and you know the children knew that afterwards they had to put them back. They weren't just abandoned them sort of all over the floor and they would sort them out into the separate baskets. And I think it really, really pays to take your time with that. You know, pen lids, scissors, all of these things, um, they sound superficial, but they help make everything go really smoothly. Um, I, I had a uh, um, pupil support assistant who came in just once a week um, and she came to support with the art time. And I remember her being kind of flabbergasted at the end of our art lesson because the children just, um, when I said, right, tidy up time, they just got on with it. They picked up every bit of paper off the floor. They got lots of water all over the tables and wiped all the glue off. And, and she said, you know, I've never seen um, a primary one classroom do this. She was used to just going around and cleaning up the paint after the children. They were cleaning the pots and the paintbrushes. And that was really just because that was part of the routine. I mean, I had... I, you know, it was very lucky because I had brought them on from nursery. So really that routine was the same as nursery. So, you know, if you are in a school where you have a nursery class, then, you know, think about what are the routines that you can build on that are already in place um, and, and take your time with that. So I would say that's one must do. And then I think the other two are, again, we've really talked about them, um, observation and then that responsive planning with the children. So you know, I think for primary teachers, observation can seem a bit scary 
because um, we don't really know what it is um, we're looking for. And it's using your own kind of knowledge of the curriculum to then sort of unpick what you're seeing. So looking at maybe some kind of narrative observation about what you're seeing and then thinking about the significant aspects of learning and maybe the skills that are being developed within that. And then that observation is what feeds into your planning. And your responsive planning might be in the moment. It might be just about how you offer something to the child or question and develop that sustained shared thinking, which is a hugely powerful kind of pedagogy. Um, it could be that then you take it away with your scribbled notes and kind of add it into your planning for the next day or the next week. Um, but, you know, I, I think that we need to get that balance as well as teachers between lots and lots of paperwork and actually, you know, things that happen um, you know, in the moment is planning. It doesn't have to be necessarily written down. Um, so that observation and planning cycle, and I think really remembering to involve the children, don't do it in isolation from them. You know, let them know what the planning is. Why? What did they do that had that impact on the classroom? You know, there's no point in, in going away and, and doing something if the children don't know that it relates to their previous learning. Um, so, you know, keep that kind of link going and that dialogue going. Um, so I think that would be my, my three top tips. I think, um, you know, there's real power, isn't there, in visibly involving the children in the planning. So, you know, using photographs and anecdotes on, you know, even just a big bit of paper and saying to them, because you did this, I'm doing that. So that Absolutely. they can see the link of you extending the learning and it's more visible to them. I think that's really important. Thank you so much for sharing those tips with us, Katrina. I'm sure many of the, the teachers going into primary one and taking a play approach will value those. Where can we find out more information? Where can new to play teachers get some more help and guidance on play pedagogies, environments? Um, yeah, do you have any advice there? So, well, I've got a few bits and pieces. I mean, the ones that people will know that we're very lucky to have from you know, our Education Scotland with Realising the Ambition is a re really perfect place to start. The Play Pedagogy Toolkit, again, also kind of goes in. And there is a fantastic um, reference sort of reading list that's part of the Play Pedagogy Toolkit. And that can take you down a whole load of kind of rabbit holes in terms of reading. Um, so <laughs> I think, you know, that's a really good place to to start looking and we'll keep you very busy. Anything really written by Tina Bruce um, about play is really useful in our 12 features of play that I mentioned earlier. Um, the Froble pamphlets, so on the Froble Trust website there are a number of pamphlets looking at, so at um, pedagogy and practice so which are lovely and really relating the principles into practice which I think are really helpful. Um, and I think um, another thing that I think is quite useful in which we haven't mentioned, but I'm sure you will at some point, is Leuven's scales um, of, of well-being and involvement in terms of looking at children's sort of engagement and how deep their learning is. But there's quite a lot more to Leuven's scales than just those two. Um, Fairy Labors has got um, a kind of thing they call Research Centre for Experiential Education. And so there's quite a lot in there about looking at you know, if your well-being and involvement levels are not very high, then you, you can then start to kind of evaluate your environment and look at how you can develop that. And he's also got a piece of work um, on adult style observations and empathy skills for adults. 
Um, so it's looking at the sort of process and the pedagogy. And it's not about a specific pedagogy, but it's about how do you improve what it is that you're doing. So I would definitely say that um, looking at Ferry Labour's work is really, really helpful as well. Um, and I mean, I could go on and on and on. There's all sorts of things out there, um, but that's probably enough to get people started. Thank you. Most definitely, Katrina, I agree with you. I think I feel that there's there's so much at the moment, particularly in terms of the national perspective with realising the ambition and in the early level play pedagogy toolkit as, as two great national documents. Um, and I know in the conversations that we've been having with practitioners in, in the local authority that I work in, just the real appreciation for the national direction around about play pedagogy right across the early level and trying to really make these connections um, from early years into, into primary one. Finally, for um, our listeners, I'm sure a number of them will be Sorry, were you going to say something there? I was I was just going to add in, James, when you're saying that about across the early level is just, you know, people that are new to primary one, talk to people in the nursery, talk to colleagues, talk to um, early years practitioners who are already doing play um, and, and get, you know, don't do it on your own. I think that often people feel a bit isolated, especially if you're in a school without a stage partner. Um, and that's what's so lovely about Scottish Educators Connect is making those connections across the whole of Scotland. There's lots of people out here who are um, much further on the journey or just starting the journey and we can all be a big support to each other. Fab. Yes, absolutely. I agree. And I think in terms of that connection, I suppose that leads us on to the final, um, the final question for you is that where can we find you on Twitter? Or as we know, you are a published author um, and you join Scottish Educators Connect with your with your author status. So where can we find out more around about around about your work and your interests? So I can be found on Twitter um at Linton Lass, um, because I live in East Linton in the lovely East Lothian <laughs> countryside. Um and and then you know, I'm sort of littered all over the internet. You find things on the Edinburgh Froble Network website. Um, and then our um, book, which was about, um, and I'm trying to, I can't even remember the title off, off the top of my head, Putting Storytelling at the Heart of Early Childhood Practice, which is a lovely book um, about developing narrative and storytelling um, right from sort of really quite early on, right through into primary one. Um, and yeah, I pop up at conferences and um, I'm involved with some work at the Trouble Trust um, and contributed to realising the ambition and the play pedagogy toolkit. So, you know, I, I've got my finger in lots of wee pies. <laughs> <laughs> play pies at that. I like the other Play pies. Absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. Katrina, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. We have learned so much in this half hour that you've been with us. And I know that the listeners that we have are just going to relish what you've shared with us and definitely follow your advice. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Next week, we get to delve into play a little bit further when we talk to two other Frobelians. We're speaking with Rianne and Sharon from Scottish Educators Connect. And they're going to explore with us about what play looks like in the nursery and what therefore do primary one teachers need to do to make that transition um, successful, smooth and relevant to the children. So tune in next Thursday for that. 
And as ever, we will see you all soon. Please remember you can follow what we're doing on scottisheducatorsconnect.com or searching hashtag scottisheducatorsconnect on Twitter. Thank you, Katrina. Thanks, James. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.